The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you uh, have a Bible, please turn to Genesis 2. Um, the passage is be on the screen behind me and also uh, in, uh, in the bulletin. So our text this morning is Genesis 2, verses 15 to 25. So hear God's word uh, to us this morning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of, the rib, one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not shamed. Let's pray. Lord, as we come uh, to this text, we uh, pray for your Spirit's help. We confess our own weakness, our own distraction, our own limitations and uh, sins, which would make us uh, want to tune out at a time like this. And so we pray for uh, your Spirit's aid. Lord, some of us are tired, uh, distracted, uh, we're weary. Uh, we come heavy laden, and so we pray that you would meet us and that you would give us a word uh, that we need. And we ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Many of you are aware that uh, I just returned a few weeks ago from a 10 week sabbatical. Um, it was really an incredible time away for me and for uh, my family. There are really not words uh, to express uh, the gratitude that I have to uh, our session, to our staff, and to our church. Uh, it was really a gift of grace, a gift uh, that goes beyond payment, uh, that goes beyond deserving. And so I want to say thank you. Um, returned from the sabbatical, uh, rested, uh, renewed, uh, more thankful than ever, uh, for the calling that I have to serve as a pastor uh, at this church, more excited, encouraged than ever in the work that God uh, is doing in our midst. And as I've talked to people about the sabbatical, one question that has come up is, what did you learn while you were there? What did God teach you about yourself or about Himself during uh, the sabbatical? And I've not been able to give as clear and concise of an answer as I probably would have wanted. And so the sermon today is one attempt at trying to do that. What did God do? Uh, what did God show me in that time away? More than learning something new or novel, I think I rather had to unlearn a few things 
uh, to let go of a few deeply held beliefs that I had. I had to unlearn to let go of my sense of importance. Our staff and leaders did a really incredible job in my absence. In my flesh, sinfully, I wanted to come back to disaster, to come back to complete chaos, and I would have to, you know, swoop in and save the day. I would be the hero that would come in and make everything right, but that didn't happen. None of that happened in reality. Things just kept plugging along, and they did great without me. Uh, I had to let go of my sense of control over how the church is doing. There are times in life where I don't want to go 10 minutes without checking email, and now all of a sudden I have to go 10 weeks without checking email. So much time and attention is focused on this part of my life, and suddenly it's completely put on hold. The faucet goes from full blast to being completely shut off in just a moment. In my role, I'm, I'm accustomed to leading meetings, to speaking. I'm comfortable doing that. And for 10 weeks, I lived in a foreign country where I could not speak the language. I had very little power or influence. I had to depend upon others, even to communicate the most basic things. I went from feeling like I usually have the answers to what's going on to feeling completely out of place and freezing every time someone would speak to me in a foreign language. I felt like a fish out of water. I felt ignorant and unequipped for what I was doing. To put it another way, sabbatical forced me uh, to consider my limits. It forced me to confront my limitations. I was reminded that I can't do everything, I can't know everything, I can't be everywhere, and I can't fix every problem. Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human, came out a few years ago, and it has been really helpful for me uh, to reflect and to make sense of uh, my time on sabbatical. And so, uh, much of what I'll say today is either directly or indirectly birthed from his writings, and so I would highly recommend uh, the book to you. But what I want to convince you of this morning is that your limits as a human being are a feature and not a bug in God's design for you. Limits are a part of God's good plan for your life. God's expectations of you do not include being limitless. God does not expect you to be able to do everything, uh, to be able to know everything, and to be everywhere. We often carry the guilt around with us that there's something wrong with us because we can't do everything. We think we feel the need to repent of things which are not sins. Where did we get the idea that limits were a sign of weakness, that limits equals sin? How many of you, when you're asked at the end of the day, how did your day go? Sitting around the dinner table, and your first response, and how did your day go, was what did I get done? What did I accomplish? How many things were checked off the to-do list? I know that that is my default answer. What I'm really saying in that is, who am I if I can't get anything done? If I can't accomplish something, who am I? In some way or another, we all feel the pressure and burden to think that the limits that we have are a defect in our character, that our limits are a sign that we are being unfaithful to God. What I want us to see this morning is that our limits 
are gifts from God, that they are a feature and they're not a bug in our divine design. And to do that, I want us to consider what it means for us to be a human being. There's an important distinction that we need to draw between limits and sin. The limits that God has created us with are not sin. It is not a sin that we need food and water and sleep. That's how God made us. But often we sin because our limits are being exposed. Our limit of not knowing everything, of not being omniscient, is not a sin. But when we overwork in denial of that limit, we enter into sin. It can be hard at times for us to make a clear distinction between what arises from a limit and what arises from sin. And so to help with that, I want to look at Adam and by extension Eve and to Jesus, because they are the only people to have ever lived on this earth apart from sin. They know what it's like to live in a sinless, uh, to live, to be sinless on this earth. And so we'll have three parts to the sermon today. I want to look at Adam's humanity, I want to look at Jesus's humanity, and then finally I want to look at our humanity. So first, Adam's humanity. One thing that is clear when you read the first two chapters of Genesis, is that God really loves human beings. Adam is the crown jewel of all of creation. In Genesis 1.26, it says uh, that Adam was created in the image and the likeness of God. All of creation is called good. When, when God creates, He calls everything good. But when He creates Adam, He says that it was very good. Human beings are God's masterpiece. We're His best work in all of the entire universe. And God doesn't just delight in one kind of human being. He delights in every way that we, uh, all of our diversity and our difference, all kinds of human beings. And when God thought, what is the best way that I can make this beautiful crown jewel of my creation? What's the best thing that I can do? He created us with limits. He created us with bodies, with souls, with minds, just the way that we are. And what are Adam's limits? What are the limits that we see Adam uh, has in Genesis 2? In this sinless world of perfection, what were the good and God-glorifying limits that God gave to him? We see that Adam had to eat. He had to sleep. Uh, He had to work. This is how God created him to be. But Adam also wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't omnipotent. His work that God called him to was for one area. In verse 15, he was put in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He was not given the whole earth. His work was for one area. One area was under his dominion and control. Adam didn't have it all. Adam couldn't do everything. And there is this overarching pressure that we feel. Uh, The temptation for us today is that we have to have it all and we have to do it all. That we have to have successful careers. And then we have to have a successful side hustle in addition to that. Students, you have to be good at everything. Be a part of every club, play every sport, win every award or you'll fall behind. Parents have to spend lots of quality time with each one of your kids. Have a date night each week with your spouse, but don't forget your health. You need several hours of exercise each day. You've also got to make time for extended 
family and friends. Don't forget to cultivate interesting hobbies in your life. Don't forsake your civic duties either or your volunteerism. You've got to be the homeroom mom or the scout leader or the coach. And we've not even gotten to church yet. To support the church and being faithful in worship and community and mission and all of those things that I have listed are great things. But there is this belief that we have to do all of them, that God is somehow disappointed in us if we don't do everything and do everything well. But Adam didn't have it all. Adam couldn't do everything. And what is implicit in him keeping and working the garden that God commanded him to do is that the garden was perfect, but the garden was not yet complete. Even the creation itself had limits. The creation was not a finished product. It was Adam's job to grow it and to keep it and to bring more order and beauty to it. Adam was limited in his knowledge. God did not create him with full knowledge of all of creation. He had to name the animals in verse 19. They use his brain. He had to figure out how to work the garden and keep it. And most noticeable in verses 16 and 17 is that Adam didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. There's a whole other sermon we could preach on what those verses mean and the knowledge of good and evil. But for our purpose today, it meant that Adam's perfection and his sinlessness included limits. Limits don't come on the scene in Genesis 3, after the fall. Limits are a part of God's good creation. Certainly sin comes and creates more limits. Sin wreaks havoc on all areas of creation, but limits aren't always sinful. Adam had them, and even more importantly, we see that Jesus had them. So let's move on to our second part, the humanity of Jesus We as a church believe what Christians have believed for thousands of years now, that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and was born of a woman, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus' humanity, His taking on flesh, is God's ultimate endorsement of human beings, that God loves humans so much that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. God the Son lived as a human being, and His human body was raised from the dead, and He continues to live as a human even today. God loves human beings so much that God the Son will for all of eternity exist as a human. And Jesus was born of a woman Jesus was not beamed down from heaven at 30 years old, ready to go on the cross. Jesus got the full experience of our humanity, and yet what in all ways was without sin. And one of the few places that we read about Jesus' childhood is in Luke 2, what it was like for him to be a child. In verse 40 of Luke 2, it says, "...the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom." And the favor of God was upon him. And later in Luke 2, in verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There's something that is implicit in both of these verses, and it is that Jesus had to grow. If Jesus grew to become strong, it meant that in some way 
he lacked strength. If Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor, it meant that in some way he lacked those things and grew into them. In his humanity, Jesus had limits. And those limits didn't make him sinful. We have to hold that tension. There were things that Jesus did not know. In his book, Kelly Capick writes this, Jesus may have had the highest IQ ever, but that would not be theologically necessary for him to be the Messiah. Others could have been better at geometry or even woodworking than he. I would have no problem admitting such a thing. If Einstein scored a higher than Jesus on an IQ test, that would not in any way jeopardize our faith. Jesus' IQ is not what qualified him to be our Savior. Instead, the eternal Son of God entered finite human existence, really becoming one with us, which included taking on real creaturely limits. Others were inevitably taller or stronger or more handsome than Jesus. None of this made him a sinner or somehow unacceptable to the Father." Jesus was just as helpless and just as powerless as any infant child would be. The fact that Jesus cried when He was hungry as a baby, the fact that He needed His diaper changed was a part of His humanity. Jesus had to learn how to speak Aramaic. He had to learn how to use utensils. He had to learn how to tie His sandals. When He was learning to walk, He would stumble and fall. He had the same limits that any of us would have as a child. Have you ever considered that Jesus had to learn the Scriptures as well? That the Scriptures, which testified about Him, He had to learn. One of my kids this morning that got together with their Kingdom Kids class, and they all recited Psalm 121 for us. And we were practicing this week, practicing uh, memorizing the verse, and it struck me. That when Jesus was a little boy, he had to learn Psalm 121 as well. That the Hebrew Scriptures didn't come hardwired in his brain from conception. It wasn't a sin that Jesus didn't know the entire Bible from the womb. It wasn't a sin when Jesus didn't make the perfect cut in his labor as a carpenter because perfect cuts aren't what qualified him to be our Savior. But what did his growth look like? When Luke says that he grew in stature and favor, what is it that Luke is referencing? As hard as it is for us to believe, Jesus was a sinless three-year-old, if you've ever been around three-year-olds, that Jesus perfectly obeyed and learned in a way that is normal and good and right for three-year-olds. His love and devotion to the Father was complete and was sinless in the limitations that he had as a three-year-old. And the same for when he was six years old, and nine years old, and twelve, and eighteen, and so forth, that he obeyed perfectly. And you might wonder, why does this matter? It seems like we're going down a theological rabbit trail with no end. Are we just straining at theological gnats here? What is the point? To show you that this really does matter, I want to move to our third point and talk about our humanity. Move on from Adam and Jesus and talk about your humanity and my humanity. It's okay that you don't know everything. It's okay that you can't do everything. It's not because you're weak. 
And it's not because you're defective, it's because you are a human being. We want to be a church where you can be a human, where your humanity is an asset and not a liability. We talk about wanting to be a church where you don't have to hide the fact that you're a sinner, uh, and that's true. We want to make sure that we communicate that over and over, but that's not specifically what we're talking about today. We also want to be a church where you can admit that you have limits, where you don't have to pretend that you can do it all, that you can walk in and you can exhale and not feel like you have to do everything. This is a time of year where we're all being pushed to sign up for everything. These are really good things. And it's easy for us to compare ourselves with those around us as a means of judgment, whether a means of judgment on us because of our perceived laziness or a judgment on other people because of their laziness. It's easy for us to mistake the limits of others for laziness, especially within the church. Why can't they just do everything? Really what we're saying is, why can't they do the one thing that's really important to me? Why can't they be as committed as I am? The pride and the selfishness that drives these questions, that kills relationships and community within the church. We want to be a church that can celebrate, that can enjoy the gifts and the limits of people within the church. We want to be a community of people who remind one another that it's okay to say no. To be reminded again that we are not loved and accepted by God because of how awesome we are, because of how we're crushing it in life. We are not loved because we are productive. We want to be a church that reminds you that you are complete in Jesus, that you don't have to prove yourself, you don't have to earn it, you can freely receive what has been done for you. And so to be practical, it's okay that you can't remember the name of everyone who walks through the doors on Sunday. Our church has grown a lot in the last few years. And this is a pressure that I feel every Sunday. You might as well. I should know everyone. What's wrong with me? This is my job. I should know and remember everyone who walks through the doors. I want to know everybody. I'll do the best that I can too. But I'm not a failure or a disappointment if I don't. And you're not either. Because you're human. I have a hard time calling my three kids by the correct name, much less 800 to 1,000 people who show up on Sunday. And I think about this with my kids as well. I get frustrated with my kids because they don't know how to do everything. Why can't they just do what I'm telling them to do? Why hasn't someone taught them what to do? Perhaps they need a parent who will tell them and teach them what it is that they are supposed to be doing. My kids actually need parents, and that's frustrating for me. My kids' limits are not sinful, and when I can accept that, it becomes easier to love them and to be patient with where they are. But in our last few minutes, what I want us to do is to consider what accepting our limits, what this might change in us. First, recognizing our limits allows us to appreciate the gifts that God has given to the people around us. For us to come to grips with our limits means that we can also do the same for other people, that no one is the complete package, that we all have abilities, we all have weaknesses, and accepting this reality helps us to appreciate the gifts and talents and abilities of those around us. God didn't create me and He didn't create them to be able to do everything. 
When our limits are not a threat to the core beliefs we have about ourselves, we can appreciate the gifts without it being a threat to us. Secondly, seeing our limits helps us to appreciate the work of the church. We are all inundated with the needs of the world around us. People and organizations asking for our time, our financial support, our material support. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of good causes that all of us could be involved with. And we can praise God for the work that so many are doing around the world. But there's something in us that believes when we hear of that, that automatically it becomes our responsibility. What kind of Christian would say no to a cause like this? Recognizing your limits allows you to say no, because every cause doesn't have to be your cause. Our limits help us to see that we all have a part to play, but it's not ours alone. We are a part of the body of Christ. We as individuals have a part, but we can rest in the fact that one part doesn't assume responsibility for the whole. God has called and equipped others, and we don't have to carry that alone. This also extends to our church, to our expression, Faith Presbyterian Church, our expression of a local church within the church universal. We can't do everything as a church but there sure is a temptation for us to try. Faith Presbyterian Church has limits. We have limits that are determined by where we're located, by the people who are here, by the members and the gifts and abilities that we have, by the resources that God has given to us. But there is this pressure that we can feel that we have to be the best at everything, that every part of the church, we have to do everything and we have to be the best at everything. First of all, how arrogant is that to believe that we would be the best at everything or at anything? And secondly, what a burden to carry as a church to feel like you have to be the best. Our limits enable us to see that God may have called us to something different than the church down the road, and that's okay. Rather than seeing that as a judgment or an indictment on them or on us, we can rejoice that the body of Christ is at work and we have a part to play. Thirdly, our limits help us to grow in humility. Our limits open us to being able to say, I'm sorry, to being able to say, I I don't know. A few weeks ago, I was leading a meeting and uh, I was in a position that I didn't have a lot of experience with in the past. And there came a point in the meeting where I had to make a decision, and I had no clue what I was supposed to do. I wish that my, my answer to the question would have been, I don't know, can someone help me? But my pride wouldn't let me acknowledge that I had limits in this area. And so I answered, and unfortunately I made the wrong decision that I needed to apologize for later. Our limits are not referendums on our worth. Our limits are reminders that we are not God, and that's a good thing. And that can grow humility in us that we don't know everything. We can't do everything, and it frees us to be humble. And lastly, our limits can help us be patient with our growth. One of the underlying beliefs we have at church is that God is at work in everyone who comes through the door on Sunday, that God has been at work before anyone shows up, and He will be at work 
when everyone leaves. But when we read the Scriptures, we see that oftentimes God's work is not done quickly. God doesn't grow things instantly. He doesn't change things instantly as we uh, would like Him to. He doesn't work quickly as we understand the Word. Oftentimes, God's work is a result of, it's His sanctifying work. That is a result of sin and us dying to sin and us living to righteousness. But there's also parts of our growth that are a result of limits that God has created us with. Either way, God is very content with our growth taking a long time. God is not in a hurry, it seems. God is not upset with you that you're not any better than you are. It's okay that you are not a finished product. God's not disappointed with you that you're in process. He's not disappointed with me that I'm in process. He's not surprised that you're not better than you are. God loves to grow things, and He is perfectly fine with it taking a while. God is not in heaven thinking that if if only those folks at Faith Presbyterian Church were a little better, then maybe my work could advance in the earth. God is so committed to you and to His church, to His people, that our limits will not drive Him away, won't turn Him away. God loves you so much that even your sin won't deter Him. Even your rebellion can't keep Him away. God is so committed to you to you and your good that He will take on all of the limitation of what it means for you to be human, that He would eternally subject Himself to everything that it meant to be a human because He loves you and He wants to be with you. God is so committed to your good that He has fulfilled all that is required of you in His law. He loves you so much that He will pay everything, that He will do everything, and He will be everything that is required for you to be with Him for eternity. And so as those who are united to Jesus by faith, as those who are secure in His love, let us celebrate and enjoy the limits that God has given to us as a part of His work. And may our limits lead us to further dependence upon Him, and may His work in us in us, push us to love and to serve those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness to us. Thank you that um, you have created us in the way that you have with limits, and those limits uh, point us to your goodness and kindness to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enable us uh, to see them, to embrace them, and thank you that uh, in your kindness to us that you have come uh, for us in Jesus. And so, Lord, um, encourage us, we pray in his name. Amen.